This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. Pam, can you provide a short introduction to your background, please? Sure. So um, I am a consumer internet professional. I've spent most of my career on the marketing and business side of uh, consumer internet companies and specifically focused on marketplaces. I've spent 20 years in that space and have worked for companies such as eBay, PayPal, uh, 99designs, and currently work at a marketplace called Just Answer, an expert marketplace called Just Answer. And what was your role and responsibility at 99designs? Um, in 99designs, I uh, was with the company for six years. I spent three years as our chief marketing officer and took on other operational responsibilities the last um, two or three years there as our chief operating officer. So that was a combination of not just marketing, but analytics, finance, our customer support area. And yes, I think that's uh, those are the primary areas. And so when you first joined in 2014, like what was the core business model? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so 99designs was, uh, fairly well known among entrepreneurs, um, and a, a lot of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs as a place to get your, the logo, your logo for your venture. And the business model was, it had sort of evolved over the years. The company was founded in 2007 and it evolved based on a design ping pong that was happening on, on a, on a website that, that the founders, the 99 design founders were managing. And there were these designers who would, you know, riff on designs. So someone puts it with something out there. Another designer was like, Oh, I think it needs a little bit of this. And so there was sort of this, you know, crowdsourcing going on in the design space. And, um, you know, a, a, a business person or a customer kind of was on the site was like, you know what? I'd actually pay money for that. You know, can I buy that from you? And sort of bing, the bottom, the business model was born. And so in 2014, you know, 99 designs had grown and sort of honed that business model such that, you know, you as a customer could come to the website, have access to, you know, designers from all over the world with all different types of skill sets who would essentially riff on designs in order to help you come up with the best concept for, for your venture. And so is that the contest format or is that pre-contest? No, essentially that was what we call the contest format. So in the early days, and you know, there wasn't really a name for it, but you know, as we kind of came to the market and packaged it and thought about, you know, gosh, how do you present this to customers? Um, you know, we did, you know, pitch it as a contest. So you come, your customer, you come in, designers will, you know, compete for your business. And, um, again, the way that worked was designers would present concepts to you and you would sort of look across them and say like, Oh, you know, I think these five are my favorite. And so, you know, you as a customer would sort of tease us out, work a little bit longer with the designer and make a decision on which one was the one that you liked best. So if I'm in practice, I go to to 99designs, say that I want a blue-ish logo and then set it out to the designers on the site and they will kind of pitch their their vision of what the logo could be and I can then choose one and and then riff further with the designer to, to hash it out in more detail. Exactly. And one of the reasons why this... Um, this works so well, especially in the design space is because, you know, many business people in business, you know, you don't, unless you're in, you know, the creative field, you don't spend a lot of time um, in design. You don't know what to ask for. You don't even know the verbiage or the terminology. And so one of the really great things about a place like 99designs is 
you know, you don't have to pick a designer that you're going to work with, you know, you've, you've sort of committed to and, you know, you're just not sure and how that working relationship is going to go with, go because you just don't have a lot of experience in, in those types of um, professional relationships. So 99designs kind of gives you the opportunity to work with, see how different designers, you know, do their work, how you, how you, you know, work with them such that you can find the, the best match for you. And then they seem to have evolved and opened it up and now you can be more of a true marketplace where I can go on and find a designer and contact a designer, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, um, you know, and again, back in 2014, you know, if you, you know, one of the things that was, again, very valuable is that you worked with a designer, you, you know, picked the design you like, which essentially meant, hey, this is the designer that I think I work best with as well. And so as a business, you probably have other design needs, you know, fine, you, you got your logo, but you may need web materials, you may need email templates, etc. And so, you know, we've helped 99 Design helps you help Helps introduce you to that designer and, uh, you know, that you can then have a longstanding relationship with. And, you know, there are many, many, you know, companies and customers who would use 99designs in that fashion as sort of a way to meet the, the designer best for the business. And then later on, we did um, kind of pull that part of the business out and put it more front and center to the customer because we found that there were some customers that did appreciate and kind of need that contest model. But then there were others that were like, you know what, I'm fairly savvy with this. I've worked with designers in the past. I'm looking for a specific skill set. I feel confident in assessing portfolios. And so we, it, you know, this, this, um, our projects product gave us gave um, customers the opportunity to go that route without kind of having to go to the contest product if they felt that wasn't best for their needs. And how do you think about 99designs positioning in that online freelance marketplace? Yeah, yeah. So um, so as I mentioned in, in my intro, you know, I've spent y- years um, involved in various marketplace businesses. So everything from, you know, broader horizontal marketplaces like the eBay's of the world to more vertical marketplaces like 99designs. So that is the distinction. It's, um, you know, there are definitely opportunities for marketplaces to thrive in verticals. And, you know, generally you find those opportunities where, you know, there is kind of, you know, it's where it's challenging for supply and demand to connect and where the technology solution enables that to, to, to happen more freely is when, you know, the magic happens. And that was the case with 99designs. The design vertical, there are a lot of designers out there. It's challenging for them to meet clients, find clients. There are a lot of customers out there that want design and don't know how to get design. They don't know if they should go down, you know, downtown to, you know, the local designer. You know, they might have a friend who says like, oh, you know, I know someone who knows someone who is a designer. You know, there was just a lot of efficiency in that matching of uh, supply and demand. And so, you know, again, the design category to design vertical was sort of ripe enough that it had those elements where demand and supply was really challenging to, um, you know, there were no efficient solutions to make that a great match. And 99 Designs kind of came in and was able to, um, you know, make a, a dent in that market because of those, um, because those inefficiencies existed. But how do you compare, you know, within the freelance marketplace space, how do you compare the likes of Fiverr or Upwork that are more horizontal marketplaces versus a 99 Designs? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, again, they go after kind of like the horizontal play, you know, closer to Amazon or, or even eBay, for example, whereby, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a different, it's a different model. It's a different focus. So, you know, if you're in a horizontal marketplace, you know, what you're looking to do is you're looking across all of your categories or all your products and services and trying to figure out, Hey, what can, you know, what can I do to grow this business? And oftentimes it's very horizontal type 
you know, activities, you know, on the product side, for example. And, you know, I guess maybe more specifically, marketplaces like Fiverr or even Upwork, you know, spend a lot of time on the transaction part of the equation or, you know, in that supply and demand, you know, they spend time on making sure that the transaction goes well, making sure that, you know, the supply or the, you know, that the freelance community is vetted, you know, keeping the transaction safe. You know, 99 Designs also needs to do those things, but as a vertical player, that com- uh, 99 Designs can spend more time working on the process with the customer. So, you know, the way we always talked about it is, you know, we are, you know, with it, in it with the customer, not just, hey, you know, go to our marketplace, you find something you like, awesome, we're happy, you know, off you go. Um, it really, you know, we, we thought about, about it more as a partnership with our customer to help them get through that process. One five at takes it to the extreme effectively and has like, I guess, productizable SKUs that are digital on their, on their platform that you can just almost purchase like a book on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, again, and part of their, you know, if you're, you're if you're a Fiverr or an Upwork, again, you're looking across all your categories and you're either looking for things that you can do horizontally or you're looking for opportunities, almost like surgical opportunities within a category where, you know, you might be able to make an impact. So again, you know, Fiverr might take a look at category and say, mm, we can probably productize or package this, you know, better for a certain customer segment and boom, they're, you know, they're going to go after that. Again, whereas, you know, a, a vertical player, you know, is, you know, again, just sort of deeper in, in the vertical. So more probably part of the process, you know, 99 designs, for example, we invested a lot in the tools that enabled, you know, designers and customers to work together so that they could actually riff on designs, you know, online. For example, a customer could, you know, annotate a design and say, Oh, I, you know, I, this is sort of where I'm not, you know, where I'd love to see a little bit more curvature, or where I'd love to see more shadowing. And, you know, again, it doesn't necessarily make it make sense for some of these horizontal marketplaces, especially in the short term, to invest that deep vertically. Now, I do think, you know, again, just even looking from my days at eBay, you know, that was our approach. You know, it was how do we just make a great marketplace for buyers and sellers? But, you know, as the marketplaces matured, we also found opportunities to go deep. For example, we, you know, created the cars category and that just had a whole different host of functionality required to enable a great transaction between a buyer and seller, similarly in real estate. So, you know, again, if you're, you're a horizontal, you're, you know, probably in your earlier years, focus on, you know, the, how do you make the, 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 some of the parts great? And maybe later you spend time, um, you know, going down the vertical route. How do you think the horizontal marketplaces can protect themselves from vertical threats? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really challenging. Um, however, you know, one of the things the horizontal marketplaces have going for them is they can just do customer acquisition more frequently. You know, think about even just your retail experience. You walk into, you know, a large store and you go, even the grocery store, right? You go there, you're just going to buy one thing and all of a sudden you walk out with six. You're like, oh, well, as you can imagine, the same thing happens online. You know, you'll even, even, you know, take Amazon, for example, Amazon can do customer acquisition and target you with, you know, hey, this, you know, new book just launched, you go into Amazon to buy that book, you realize, oh, I need to buy four or five other things. And therefore, you know, you've spent much more money and the customer acquisition, you know, costs then, you know, make sense for, for Amazon. It makes sense for them to buy you as a book 
consumer or, you know, pay to, you know, purchase you as a consumer advertising to uh, attract you to the website, to the website, but then they make money on all the purchases you make. So the vertical player is more challenging because you don't have, you know, those other products to put in front of a customer to help monetize. So you have to be fairly confident that you're getting in front of the right customer with the right product. That's pretty much the only product you have to give them. And so, but back to answer your question, you know, how do they prevent, protect from that? They probably, they sort of start horizontal and are fairly, you know, kind of create a, a moat or, you know, competitive advantage in that, that customer acquisition um, engine, which then just allows them to, you know, make more money, then have the opportunity to invest in some other areas of, of, uh, you know, other vertical areas. But, you know, it's, it's sort of not uncommon for these horizontal marketplaces to go out and, you know, use, use then the money they've earned on customer acquisition and building that moat to go buy a vertical player, for example, because then they didn't necessarily have to invest in the functionality required to make that vertical successful. And just taking back to eBay then, and clearly Amazon evolved in their model and owned more of the customer experience, which somewhat disrupted eBay in a way and slowed down the growth of eBay. What do you think could be the Amazon for Upwork or Fiverr? I mean, just going back to the eBay, Amazon example, because, you know, I was there in the in the early days where, you know, eBay and Amazon were kind of, you know, Amazon was still kind of little and it wasn't even clear that Amazon was going to be the behemoth e-commerce player that it is today. You know, but I think looking back over the years, you know, what eBay did very well was that, you know, they were very strong in, in the used market, right? It was, you know, we, we had a lot of people who came to eBay because it was, they couldn't find something in their local store and, you know, it wasn't sort of new in box product. It might've been collectibles or, you know, other antique type products. And what Amazon did well is they, you know, sort of capitalized on the new market better than faster than eBay did. So, you know, potentially you could have seen a scenario where if eBay maybe went after, you know, new inbox product faster or maybe in a different way, you know, maybe we, you know, we'd be in a, a different situation today and sort of that eBay, Amazon, um, sort of what happened in the last 20 years. But again, going back to your question. So it, I guess maybe hindsight's 2020 and that's easier for me to look at that example and see sort of why and how that happened. So I guess, but coming back to Upwork and Fiverr, you know, what would have to happen for someone to kind of outplay <laughs> Upwork or Fiverr? I just don't know anything off the cuff. Well, how do you look at them? Do you, do you, do you kind of see Upwork as like the more enterprise, higher higher upmarket player versus Fiverr at the at the low end? How do you position them in the market? Yeah, yeah, interesting. You know, again, just as you know, I look at marketplaces across various industries. You know, Upwork and those especially sort of focused on more less on consumers and more on businesses, which is what you have with Upwork, Fiverr, and even 99design. So, and, and, you know, a lot of those customers may be very small businesses, but, you know, at the end of the day, they're still making those purchases for those businesses. So, you know, what Upwork and Upwork, I think, did fairly well is, you know, in their journey, you know, they were fairly successful in the small, the SMB market. And then they kind of gradually went upstream closer to enterprise and they had success in certain categories in the enterprise market. So specifically, I believe in the customer support space, you know, where they enabled you to find customer support agents all around the world that could help, you know, support your support business. They also were very successful in the technology space or in the developer space. And that sort of gradually moved to like UX and other tech functions. So, you know, they, I, I'm assuming, you know, again, had successful SMBs, but 
early success, but realized sort of where they could get repeat usage and, you know, higher margins with through the enterprise and providing a greater level of service, a, you know, more higher security product to the enterprise. And again, that's how they, they made their name. I think Fiverr did a little differently. Or, no, Fiverr didn't say do it differently, but they went very aggressively against that SMB market with, you know, with, with Upwork. And, um, you know, the other thing that Fiverr did really well is they kind of went after these categories that just weren't super established on Upwork. So again, Upwork was well known for like developers and UXers and, and, and customer support agents, more like your traditional business functions. Whereas Fiverr, you know, kind of was, you know, they had this quirky, like, the, almost like the creatives, like, hey, find someone to do, you know, your ad read. And, you know, again, just like these categories that, you know, Upwork wasn't super, super strong in. And so that just atta- attracted, you know, a, a just potentially even the same customers, but just in those different categories. And then Fiverr was able to expand into other categories beyond those, um, those, those creative categories. What also amazed me about looking at Fiverr is that they seem to be targeting the, you know, the smaller end of the market, right? I think, you know, a huge portion of their, of their revenue is, you know, sub $100 gigs per year, right? And yet, yet they have the highest take rate, you know, they have like a 27% take rate. So it, it does seem like they've, they have such scale in that kind of end of the market that enables them to charge, you know, 27% Take it, which is far above the other players. Yeah, yeah. So the other thing you, they did very well, which is very different than even like 99 Designs or, or Upwork is, you know, they started at that very, very low price point, right? So it was that, you know, they just attracted customers with unbelievable deals, right? Whether, you know, $5 for a gig. And, um, you know, sort of proved that there was a market there for that, you know, low end work. And then what they did really well was the add-ons. So, you know, pretty much it's really hard to, it's, it's hard to be profitable with, you know, a $5 customer, but they were able to turn that $5 customer into, you know, a $100 customer, $150 customer. So again, just, a, you know, a different way in which they went after attacking the market, you know, categories that were, you know, a little off the beaten path. Um, where there was still, you know, supply and demand efficiencies, inefficiencies, and they were able to, you know, identify that, capture that. Two, you know, with a pricing or promotion strategy of, hey, it's so cheap. It just, you know, was really did very well for them. And frankly, they also just spent a ton of money <laughs> getting, you know, customers in the door. So they, you know, they had like billboards and, you know, they spent a lot in, in marketing that, you know, frankly, a lot of these marketplaces have never really done. You know, they did it much earlier in their, life cycle, I would suggest, than, than other marketplaces have. Is that really the advantage here? Is it that flywheel from, which actually just, it, it does stem from capital. It stems from spending the money to acquire the customers. Obviously, you have to retain them and they have to spend, but it just seems so hard to compete with with the money they spend. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, I mean, well, yeah, how do you compete? You compete either because you raise the money right from venture capitalists or whomever, or somehow you have this, you know, amazing business model that allows you to self-fund. But I think, you know, we all know for the, well, I don't know everyone, but, you know, for those of us who've been involved in kind of business for years or even like smaller companies and seeing them grow, I mean, venture funding does, you know, really give you that leg up and a way to accelerate. And, you know, the risk is, hey, is it going to pay off in the end? And I would suggest that, you know, 
for a fairly long time, it was not clear that, you know, that Fiverr was going to be successful, right? It's like, oh gosh, are they going to hit the wall or are they actually going to be able to get over the wall? And I would say even similarly to Amazon, right? Like you think about Amazon back in 1999. I mean, it was, oh gosh, are they ever going to make a profit? You know, they're just like losing money, losing money, losing money. And they did, you know, Amazon didn't hit the wall. They jumped over the wall. And so it is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a risk that, um, you know, a risky game, but, you know, obviously it can work. When looking at how you competed with, you know, a horizontal marketplace, so does it push you down providing a better quality experience, which requires more customer support, arguably more cost into the process, the customer experience, which does that push you then to a higher price point and higher value customers? Yep, definitely. And, you know, that was sort of, I think anyone who goes to 99designs will see that reflected, uh, you know, in on the website throughout the experience. You know, it isn't, you know, if you want quality design, you know, you're going to get an elevated, um, you're going to get an elevated experience if you go through, again, a place like 99designs. And again, I wouldn't even say that's, you know, hopefully that's even fairly clear to the customer when you go to these, you know, these, these marketplaces and just, you know, see for yourself. But yes, you know, in order to provide that elevated quality of design, we invest differently or, you know, 99designs invest differently, invested differently than I'm sure Fiverr and Upwork invested. Like I was saying, Up, Upwork and, and Fiverr, they're looking at more sort of horizontal investments and we're making more vertical investments, more, ver- more investments in the process. And that, you know, allows, I think, 99designs probably to command a higher price point in those, you know, design, um, design products and to, you know, be- because they're ultimately delivering a higher quality product. I think it's like 200, well, in the UK, 279 or 80 pounds per logo for 99designs. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while since I looked at our, the UK pricing, but yes, that's probably about right. Don't you have this issue, though, for vertical marketplaces, you know, in any category that I only need one logo. So so you, you also rely on, I also only need one, you know, website or email template. Does that not make it difficult that you have like a natural churn with your customers? I mean, I would just say like most marketplaces, there's a fairly, you know, the the 80-20 rule is is in effect where, you know, 20% of the customers deliver 80% of the revenue, 20% of the sellers or the suppliers deliver, you know, 80% of the supply. I mean, it's just kind of like a pretty much a fundamental truism of, you know, of any of these internet marketplaces. And so, you know, it's just, yes, you're right. There are a lot of customers that come in and they, um, you know, might just need a logo and maybe they need, you know, a couple other things. But then, you know, again, as a marketplace, you find the customers who are going to contribute more regularly, the, the you know, the, the sellers and the suppliers that are going to, you know, contribute more regularly. And essentially, you, you know, you also like build the experience for them, right? To, you know, make sure that they stay, to make sure that they commit to your platform. And how would you segment the buyers on 99designs? Yeah. You know, if you think about the the design business and who, you know, you might expect to purchase design, you know, it's fairly consistent with the offline world and that you have small businesses who need design for their small business. You might then have agencies who are design sources themselves, but, you know, traditionally agencies are smaller outfits, you know, maybe they're 20 employees and less. And, you know, a lot of times you have, if you're an agency, gosh, you know, sometimes you're rolling in it, sometimes you're not, right? So it's just very volatile. And then you might not be able to staff everyone you want to staff. So you may not be able to, you know, staff all the designers across a variety of 
design categories. So, you know, someone who does web design, someone who does print design, someone who does, you know, graphic design, you know, all the various um, types of design. So it's not going to make sense for you to always have them on staff. And so you might use 99 designs to augment your design resources such that, you know, you, you know, make sure that you're staffing what, you know, what you need on a regular basis. And then again, you might use 99 designs for those areas where you don't have staff on site or on hand, or, you know, it's projects that you just, don't do all the time. And therefore you need, you know, a specific expertise. Like you have a client that comes in and, you know, you usually do signage and all of a sudden they want a website. Well, gosh, you know, you want to service the customer client as best as you can. So you can use a marketplace like 99designs to access, um, access, uh, access extra talent. And then on the enterprise side, you know, companies need design, whether that's for internal purposes, for, you know, employee th- things they're using with their employees or, events that they host for customers, you know, they just obviously have a lot of design needs and, um, you know, a place like 99, a marketplace like 99 designs works well for them because again, they have people on staff who might be focused on certain things, but all of a sudden they need to do a once a year, an event, and it's not going to make sense to hire someone full time to work on that. They're, you know, going to access, you know, staff or talent outside of their for walls now four virtual walls i guess during covid but <laughs> there are four walls and so how did you look at acquiring demand versus the likes of fiverr i think they reported that there well you can work out the customer acquisition cost is was around 250 dollars and then declined a bit obviously 2020 to around 100 150 if you normalize it a bit which seems obviously roughly like a one-year payback for them on the revenue or gross margin they spent. So how did you look at, could, could you spend more to acquire the customers given you had a higher price point? Or how did you look at competing on the acquisition of demand? Yeah, I mean, very similar to how, you know, most internet businesses look at customer acquisition. They look at, you know, the various places they have to acquire customers. They look at the, you know, general lifetime value of their customer and how, you know, long they're willing to pay or willing to wait to earn that income from that customer. Um, you know, and that is obviously a function of how much money they have in the bank and, you know, how long they're, you know, kind of willing to wait. Um, so, you know, again, so 99designs, again, we're a vertical marketplace. So like most vertical players, you have to be, you know, better at converting. You have to be, you know, because again, you know, that, um, you know, you'll only, you have like limited product to be able to put in front of the customer. So your conversion rates need to be fairly high because once you get that person, you know, that prospective class customer to your landing page, you know, you need again to perform better than, better than average, right? Then again, a horizontal player might need to, might need to perform. So, um, so again, I guess I would suggest that again, 99 designs, we just, we just had to be more surgical with our customer acquisition efforts make sure that our conversion rates were very high. Like a best-in-class conversion rate, you know. I mean, my best in cl- I think my, your best-in-class is probably 3x what an average conversion rate is, would be my guess. It's like we're a horizontal. It always reminds me, so Booking.com, I think they convert 14 15% of the traffic to a booking. But obviously, that's travel, which is very different, but... yeah. Yeah, I mean, as you know, I've worked for many, you know, seen many companies, many customer acquisition strategies, and it just all depends. Honestly, I think one of the key things is even though we look for sort of these truisms like CAC to LTV or, 
you know, these, these various ratios that honestly, it is literally, it's the package, right? It's, you know, for example, one of the things 99designs had going for it, which we just had excellent word of mouth. People loved their 99designs experience. We, you know, had a lot of successful entrepreneurs on our platform and they would tell their entrepreneurial friends that 99designs was, you know, was excellent. In fact, one of our, um, uh, I don't know, do you know who Tim Ferriss is? He's a, uh, he wrote four hour work week. So he, you know, had a great experience on 99 designs. He wrote in his book, the four hour work week, you know, what a great experience he had. And we, you know, we would look through our referrals. And we're like, huh, you know, Tim's referring, <laughs> referring, uh, you know, customers to 99 design. So, you know, again, like that is a, a channel, a marketing channel that, you know, we had at our disposal that maybe other companies don't. And so, you know, there's just, you know, if you think about it, there's SEO. It comes from the money you spend on the product though as well, right? Like that 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 money you spend in like making the experience great is gets reflected in the word of mouth. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not as if um nothing is free, right? Even word of mouth is not free. You have to invest in order to earn that word of mouth. So um it's no question. But you know, again, I was just sort of trying to make the point that Every product is different. You know, so, uh, maybe another thing, like our product was actually fairly, had some viral elements to it as well. So, you know, if you were a customer and you had five designs that you were sort of toying over, you know, you could send that out to your, you know, your, your friends or whomever and say, Hey, which one do you like best? And so that was just like, Oh, what is this 99 designs thing? And so you would, our polling feature helps to, to drive you know, customer acquisition as well. So, you know, again, but that was because we had a contest model in some other marketplaces. You might not have, you know, that, um, you know, that innate virality in your product to be able to leverage. So again, back to, you know, you're asking like, what's, what's strong conversion? I, I mean, I, again, I think it depends. Again, I was, I guess I was going at it as if you look at sort of channel by channel, like anyone who's in SEM and sort of what are like average e-commerce conversion rates and, you know, sort of someone who's going for more vertical, you have to, you know, probably be three X better than your competition. But, you know, again, depending on kind of the package of marketing levers you have at your disposal or that you can, you can build is really going to impact um, what your conversion rates need to be. How did you see customers behave on 99 designs versus other marketplaces you've worked at? So, yeah, I'm, I don't think, to, uh, nothing is coming to mind that the, you know behavior might be you know di- i mean i guess maybe you know if i think about sort of the ebay's of the world and kind of more consumer e-commerce i mean it's definitely a consumer e-commerce generally speaking a little less of a sophisticated exchange right so generally if you went to ebay you kind of knew what you were looking for and again if it was like a, a collectible or an antique you'd be able to sort of ask you know specific questions but, you know, you, it, it, there's sort of a lot more defined in that transaction. Whereas at a place like 99 Designs where you're selling, for the most part, of like a digital product, you know, it's just a lot less. And also it, it, this, this satisfaction with the, with, the, with the purchase is very different. So if you were on eBay and you received something, you know, a, a, an item and it had a piece broken, well, that's very clearly, you know, you're clearly able to articulate what is wrong, with, what was wrong with that transaction. You received a damaged product. Whereas on, a, you know, in a design marketplace like 99designs, you know, if you don't like the design, it's hard to communicate what you don't like about it. Exactly. It's very, and it's very subjective, right? So, you know, it's, 
yeah. So what's, what's challenging is like, how do you navigate that, that subjectivity and how does a company even like, how does 99 as a company help the customer and the, um, you know, designer kind of navigate that subjectivity? What about retention? What did you see the difference in like sales retention or customer retention on? 99 designs. Again, I would just say that I go back to like the 80-20. It's fairly across, you know, marketplaces I've looked at both, you know, either worked or just, you know, observed or, you know, know through reading about them. You know, it's it's sort of this 80-20 where 20% of of customers, you know, sort of repeat or heavily engaged, et cetera. And, um, and, and others are not. And again, I would just say that's probably just a requirement of what makes a marketplace work. Um, you know, whereas in other business models, it might be okay to have, you know, non-repeat customers or re- customers that repeat infrequently. Let's take the example of just a car company, right? People make a car purchase once every eight years, right? But that doesn't stop you know, companies from marketing them to try to, you know, build brand recognition such that they get to that point, you know, eight, you know, each of that, those eight year purchase points that they're in the consumer's mind. Again, I think it's just like a, a requirement of marketplaces that you have a certain number of, of customers and suppliers who really are just, you know, there, you know, day in, day out to enable the, the marketplace to thrive. And there was uh, one stat that I saw in Fiverr's, you know, just reporting that I think it was, yeah, they're seeing a growth in repeat buyers as a percentage of revenue. I think it's around you know fifty fifty eight percent or fifty five percent of repeat buyers contributed to that. Well, repeat buyers contributed to fifty five percent of revenue, which I, I don't know exactly the definition of that, but obviously the sales retention, the Upwork report, which is a slightly different metric, there's obviously above. You know, they've got like a net retention number which is 102 105%. So do you think there's a difference in the sales retention of those lower value marketplaces like Fiverr versus a more enterprise upwork? I would have to say yes because you know, just again working in enterprises for years, right? And I was also an SMB, you know, um owner myself. And the switching costs for enterprises are so high, you know, it's sort of, that's, I mean, that's, uh, they're just sort of fundamentally different customer acquisition techniques, you know, sales techniques, all of that, right? With the enterprise, it is a long, long sales cycle. It takes a lot of, you know, commitment, a lot of time to kind of get to that commitment. But once you make that commitment, it's like you're married, right? <laughs> so you, you integrate the software, you integrate the processes or the, you know, the, the, the freelancers as part of your, you know, your systems. And, you know, for someone to kind of re- come in and replace that is just really challenging. Either the replacement op- opportunity has to be much more, um, you know, much cheaper or, you know, 10x better. Or, yeah, I mean, those are essentially the two options that would, I think, you know, get you to get an enterprise to switch out. Whereas SMBs, I mean, one, a lot of SMBs, you know, businesses don't succeed. So there's just like a lot of turnover, right? I mean, most of, you know, most, most, I don't know, it's too general of a statement, but I'll say it anyway. My observations is that companies that are successful in servicing the SMB market are generally successful because they attract them. They're good at attracting new businesses, so companies that are just, you know, getting off the ground and they're good at managing churn, either they really understand churn. So they understand how they need, you know, how it impacts their business or they have little churn because there's just so much turnover 
in the small business market that that's you know you just need to be good and at And this is my question that. with Fiverr because it does seem like Upwork is really you know they're obviously naturally more inclined to go to higher dev higher value enterprise type work Fiverr is really focused on the smaller gigs and I'm just I question like how much runway really is there for Fiverr to keep growing because you have to keep replacing those cost those buyers really you know rapidly Sure sure yeah I hear you so so yes you know however I would just suggest that you know, it's, it's a global world. It's different than it was 20 years ago. I mean, even at, you know, even 20 years ago, eBay was very regional. You know, there was like eBay Germany and eBay France and eBay, you know, and, you know, really just over the last 20 years with technology and just the, the efficiency, you know, that globalization has just kind of opened up markets. Sorry, have, yeah, just have opened up markets in ways they weren't available, you, you know, 20 years ago. And so, you know, I hear you, you could say, oh gosh, they're going to run out of SMBs, but I don't know, maybe they'll be the size of Amazon before they do, right? (laughs) You know, I don't know, but, um, uh, you know, I I hear you. It does, you know, that is the other challenge with, you know, businesses that are dependent on SMBs is, you know, there are a lot of turnover and customer acquisition. You would be excellent at customer acquisition because there's going to be a lot of churn and, you know, it's, it just, it does, it does get expensive to grow over time. I think that probably is just a truism in the SMB market. You need to be great at customer acquisition. You need to be great at managing your churn. And how can a player like Fiverr move up market? They, they claim that they're going to be moving to higher value buyers, but obviously need to spend more. So how, how do you balance that chicken and egg? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's, you know, probably two ways you grow with your customers. So if you have, you know, if Fiverr has, you know, SMB customers and, you know, I, I haven't looked at the distribution. I don't even know if they publish this of, you know, which ones are sort of, I don't know, 10 million above revenue, you know, the various stages, but, you know, one is to make sure that you grow with your customers. You're able to serve them as they grow. And then, you know, the other part is just, frankly, you have to invest. You have to invest in the security protocols, in the, you know, even just legal. You know, if you think about, you know, if you're, if you're a Fiverr going after, you know, an SMB, cool, you know, you go to Google, you go, you know, you access your marketing levers to, you know, drive, drive traffic into the website. You know, if you're going after an enterprise, you need a sales team. You need, you know, some, you need legal support to, you know, redline contracts and make sure you're not, you know, signing the company up for, for something you shouldn't, you shouldn't sign up for. You know, it just requires a, a different muscle. Maybe that's a great way to describe it. Like, you know, I think going after enterprises and my, my experience is, you know, consumer and SMB marketing and, you know, it's just, they're more similar. Whereas enterprise, again, it's a very different muscle, very different way of approaching the market. And, you know, I, my understanding is that, you know, Upwork has invested fairly heavily over the last, whatever it's been, you know, 15 years to get itself there. So, you know, it's also, it's not a, not something to be taken lightly. What do you think that will be the challenges in moving into enterprise for the likes of Upwork? So, you know, the challenges that are with any, you know, enterprise business with, you know, with SMBs, they're whatever there are, 4 million that come on board uh, online in the US in a year or something like that. You know, whereas enterprises, there are, you know, a list of them. You literally could read the list, right? (laughs) And, you know, you have to just, you know, it is, I guess what I would say, it's a finite list and it doesn't rotate that much. Whereas again, your SMB list of X million a year that, you know, come online or, you know, start their businesses, it's, it's, it's constantly changing. And so how do you navigate a more, what's 
challenging is, you know, how do you think about strategically going after that list? Do you start at the top? Do you start at the bottom? Do you bake, you know, do you break it out by vertical? You want to go after certain verticals? And, you know, then how do you think about, gosh, how do we, you know, if uh, some of the times these enterprises want you to be the exclusive provider, right? So like you have to make decisions on, oh gosh, if we go after this vertical and we get, you know, company A in this vertical, are we not going to be able to get company B? Because that also just, you know, reduces the, you know, your, your market share opportunity. So it's, you know, I think they're just, you know, big strategic questions you need to be prepared to answer. And the challenges are, it's a finite list. You have to answer those questions and, you know, and it's, a, and it takes a long time to know if you're going to be successful, right? So, you know, in SMB marketing, you know, you can throw some ads up on Google. You can take a look at your conversion rates. You can, you know, there's a lot of even like growth marketing tactics you can use in, you know, the consumer SMB space. And I think you're just a little bit more limited. And I, I say that take it with a grain of salt because I don't have, you know, a ton of experience in that space. But my sense is you just don't have as many sort of like quick win quick the feedback loop is much longer right? yes 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 in the enterprise space so you know those are you have to be you have to be really good in the beginning whereas in smbs you can be a little more sloppy and a little bit more test and learn you have to be more yeah i guess i would just use the word surgical again did you did you see bigger enterprises using 99 designs during your time we did yes we did mm-hmm. and how would they would they just have one big job or was there like a longer term contract with them? Um, it varied. You know, a lot of times it was, um, you know, if they had sort of repeat work that, you know, they didn't want their internal design team to be spending time on, they needed their internal design team to be spending time on something else. So they would, you know, could come to 99, would come to 99 designs for that. Um, another example uh, might be, you know, they had, again, this big project that wasn't really in the wheelhouse of their existing creative team. So they might come to 99 designs for that. You know, another example is, you know, it's just sometimes hard to get things done in big companies. And so they sort of have these like maverick people in the organization who are like, oh, I'm number 37 on the list of these creative, you know, with our creative team, or I could go to 99 designs and get this done in a week. And so, um, you know, we would have marketing managers or, you know, creatives in, in big companies who might use 99designs to get things done faster than they might be able to through their traditional processes. It's quite interesting though. Do you think that we will see the bigger enterprises actually using more vertical solutions for, for their work rather than a horizontal because they have the time and the, and the capital and the wherewithal to go actually for a quality solution? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I have a strong sense for that, but I guess I would say, you know, that to be successful, you have to have a great solution. And even if you're, if you're in an enterprise and you're looking for a great solution, the horizontal solution needs to be pretty great, or you're going to go with the vertical solution. Now, one way is in which the horizontals sort of can do well, even if they don't have the best solution is, you know, they are you know, have the contract with the enterprise, right? Whereas, you know, the, the enterprise might say to their employees, hey, we have this contract with Upwork. So you need to use, you know, if you're going to access freelance talent, you need to, you know, go through these channels because, you know, we've worked with them to make sure that, you know, we're following all, um, you know, contractor laws that we're, you know, our, our data is safe, et cetera, et cetera, right? They might, you know, enterprises need to be careful about Mavericks going off to outside the processes, you know, because of just, you know, again, legal and other issues that they would, you know, want to make sure that they protect themselves from. So, you know, but again, if you're just asking me from a pure product solution, you know, what's the best solution, you know, 
as a business, you know, no matter what, you know, if you're going to be in trouble if you don't have a great solution for your customer. Upwork could even come to you, 99 Designs, for the design work for enterprise customer. Yeah, sure. Sure. Right. Right. When we look at those enterprise contracts, is that really settled, you know, or potentially like who signs off the contract at the enterprise level? Is it like the head of HR or like who's the, because I guess you was working with the marketing head in your 99 designs for the enterprise contract, right? I think, you know, it just depends on the company. You know, I don't know. My guess is the Upworks of the world probably have an enterprise team where, you know, it's probably separate from their SMB team. I mean, at, at, at the client, uh, like who, who's the... If, if- oh, the client, who's signing the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Understood. So it depends, but, you know, procurement, right? So there's, you know, in a lot of enterprises, there's a department that's called procurement and it has the relationship with all the vendors that the company uses for, you know, printing or accounting or, you know, whatever it is. And so the procurement department kind of goes to the process of, So, you know, generally, I think how it probably works is, you know, whoever needs the solution needs, you know, needs access to the freelance talent. They probably, you know, are are the ones looking at solutions or getting pitched solutions, right? I mean, maybe Upwork's going to, uh, you know, their head of engineering and saying, hey, we could help you with, you know, um, if you need need talent. And then, um, you know, I would think that those, the heads of those departments would then, you know, decide if that would be an effective solution and make sure that, you know, working with procurement, they could get the sign off for um, working with that, with, with Upwork or whomever as a vendor. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking of like, what what are the risks of Upwork? You know, Upwork are quite aggressive in moving into the enterprise market. I'm just curious, what could be the risk of them being challenged by the vertical solutions, right? Like if I've got a if I'm at a big company, why would I choose Upwork when I can just go with 99 Designs and an engineering specific vertical focus? Sure. You know, and again, if you're, you know, so 99 Designs, you know, if we were talking to the enterprise, we we're probably talking to the head of creative or, you know, the head of marketing, right? Where again, if you're Upwork, you're probably talking to the, you know, whomever, head of engineering or the head of customer support or the head of UX. Right, so just a different focus in, and and it really is up to Upwork to kind of break into that signing with the head of procurement or head of HR or making like... Yeah, so yeah, I don't think it's HR, but I think it's... Would it be HR? I don't think it's HR. Might even be finance, to tell you the truth. You know, especially, you know, those companies are public and just making sure like where it's sort of... Le- where's legal and finance sit, you know, I would think it could be that, but, um, you know, again, they could also go pitch procurement directly. So, you know, there are, they could go to procurement and say, Hey, you're responsible for all the vendors. Here's solutions we can provide. And then the procurement, you know, folks could go out to the various departments and understand if there was, you know, sort of a horizontal play would make sense for, you know, the company. What about on the supply side then? So how would you compare the supply side of 99 designs versus the likes of Upwork? Yeah. So, you know, freelancers are always going to go where they think they can be successful. And so the way, you know, we looked at it in 99 designs is how do we enable our freelancers to be successful? In fact, we almost, you know, sort of thought about that more than, um, you know, than even sort of the, the customer success side, because we felt again, if we, if we made this, if we made the designer successful, the customer was going to be successful, you know, but that being said, you know, I don't, you know, none of these marketplaces really say, oh, you can work here. You can't work there. You know, it's really the responsibility, I think, of the marketplace to create a great environment for 
the freelancer so that, um, you know, that they want to work there. And so that, you know, that's a combination of, you know, Hey, well, actually it's, you know, many things, but you know, it's how do I, how, can I make money here? Um, it is, you know, do I enjoy sort of the projects and the process and like, how are the clients? And so, you know, when you're a freelancer, really, you know, <laughs> there's nothing more annoying than two things. Either one, the client just is not, you know, you have a hard time working the client or you don't get paid, right? Those are like the two things <laughs> that you care about. And so again, as a freelance, as a marketplace, you know, any, any of us market place folks, you know, responsible for making sure that our, our suppliers get paid and that, you know, we can do our best to make sure that they have a, you know, they're successful with our clients. Just when looking at the pricing, I mean, how do you think Upwork's pricing could evolve? I mean, it's quite complex now with the different tiers they have and the structures. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's another, you know, gosh, that's probably another hour conversation in and of itself. And I don't even know if I would be, um, in a position to be able to, um, you know, ar- articulate that well. But I guess I would just say, you know, price marketplace pricing is like a department in and of itself, right? It's, you know, how do you understand, you know, that the dynamic, the supply and demand dynamics by category, by quality level, you know, there's all different factors, right? That go into how do I price my product, right? Because at the end of the day, marketplaces are, like you mentioned, like take, take rate, figuring out how much, Goes to the supplier. But take Fiverr is interesting though, because they've got 20, 20% take rate for the supplier and then 5% for the buyer, which is, it's, it's on the high, it's on the high end of, of marketplaces globally. Yeah. 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 Of course. Right. And again, and they do it a little differently in that most marketplaces do take it from the, the, the you know, sort of take it from the su- supplier, if you will. Right. Whereas, you know, Fiverr is one of the few where there is that buyer, I don't know what they call it, but that buyer fee. Um, yeah. So I, again, it's, you know, there's, so, you know, and the other thing is, you, um, you know, currency exchange rates, as you think about, you know, you're dealing with cross-border transactions, uh, you know, all these marketplaces are dealing with cross-border transactions. Again, there's just so many variables that, um, that go into, you know, figuring out how to price your product. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's just one, one never ending optimization game. How do you think that would have to change? How do you think that would change for Fiverr? Do you think that's on the high end that needs to eventually have somewhat, you know, decline over the years? I don't know if I'm in a position to say nothing's coming to mind on why it would or wouldn't move in one direction or another. I mean, I guess I would just say that, you know, truism in business is that, you know, you have to be competitive in pricing. You have to be, you know, for marketplaces, you have to make sure you're, you're not going to have a great balance, a supply demand balance. If you don't play, you know, if, this, if the supply doesn't get paid enough and if, you know, the price is too high for the customer, right? But is this the power of demand? Is that the power of aggregating demand? Like you said before, where, you know, that they've kind of, they've aggregated the demand for those, you know, cheaper, smaller value gigs, right? Yeah. 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 So when, um, you know, and that kind of comes back to very, very early my eBay days. And I st- still feel like this holds true. You know, Meg Whitman was CEO of eBay um, way back when. And, you know, I just recall her saying, you know, it's the economic theory that if you bring the buyers, the sellers will come. And I think if you just look across all these marketplaces, like, yes, if you bring the buyers, the the freelancers, the supply, you know, it's going to be there. It's just, you know, economic theory. And uh, yes, that I think we've seen, you know, prove out again and, and again. So 
So while I said, you know, hey, 99 designs, we needed to be, you know, make sure our designers were successful. Part of making them successful was making sure that there were clients there. When, when does that not hold true? It doesn't hold true when maybe there's an imbalance on the other side. You know, for example, maybe not for marketplaces as a whole, but there are definitely cases in marketplaces where there's limited supply and sort of too much demand. And then, you know, there's sort of more pricing power on the buyer side. So, you know, we would see that at eBay, for example, there were certain categories where there was just a ton of demand, not a lot of supply or a ton of supply, not a lot of demand. And, you know, it was up to our category managers to go around and say like, okay, we need to figure out how to get more supply in this category. How do we, how do we do that? Um, and so again, if you, you, you know, that's, that's, that's a little bit outside of pricing. I mean, pricing is still a lever to kind of help drive that, but um, you know, to, dr- to drive that balance. But, you know, there are, I think areas, pockets in marketplaces where, you know, sometimes it doesn't hold true just because there's a inefficiency in the market somehow where there's not enough supply. One last question that I wanted to discuss around just the customer acquisition cost and your experience and how you see that. Did, did you typically see a decline over the years at 99 Designs, for example, as you got to scale, you know, did you see that decline or, or just a lifetime value increase? Or how did you, how, how did you see that evolve? I, mean, I guess I would just say that, you know, what we focused on was continuing to grow customers, attract them to the platform, make sure that they had a great experience, make sure that our pricing was in line with, you know, competition. And, you know, you know, again, it was almost like a constant, all of those levers, all of those, you know, parts, pieces moving. And how do we make sure we, you know, pull the right levers to, to make sure that, you know, we continue to drive, to drive growth. But I, I mean, I guess I will say, you know, there was nothing, no macro in the market that, you know, sort of drove anything one way or another. And, and you know, just if we look more conceptually, like the, the fivers or the Upworks, I mean, how would you think about the customer acquisition costs for those types of marketplaces? So, yeah, like I said, you know, they... As a horizontal marketplace, you potentially have more areas to go after because you have more products to sell. You're not just focused on one. Um, you know, I guess what I've seen pretty much in any marketplace is that there's usually like something that kind of gets you off the ground and then you build out other channels. So for example, you know, at eBay, we had a very strong relationship with AOL and, um, AOL in our very early days. And so, you know, AOL helped, you know, kind of give eBay step function growth. So part of, you know, I think the, ch- the challenge of any marketplace is trying to find that something that will give you that, you know, extra step function growth. Like a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, right. I mean, as we've seen, the, a pandem- the, the pandemic has kind of, you know, accelerated e-commerce. Fiverr's customer acquisition cost has gone from $250 in 2018 to to sub $100 last year. Yeah. So, you know, is that the, that maybe that is the pandemic? Maybe it is there just at scale, right? So also, you know, kind of early on, you take, you, you acquire more customers. And if those customers bring in more customers, you know, that can sort of can, can build upon itself. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's no, uh, you know, I think it's very, very, fairly clear that uh, while the pandemic has decimated you know, some businesses and industries, there are others where there's just been extreme acceleration. But and it was 150 bucks. It was 150 bucks in 2019, which is obviously pre-pandemic. So do you, 
do you think it's or well, when you look at horizontal marketplaces is it more logical that the customer acquisition cost declines over time for horizontal marketplaces but declines slower for vertical specific ones because I guess you run out of customers, right? Like that's my point. Like the marginal customer for a for a ninety nine designs is probably much harder to acquire than a than a Fiverr customer. I mean, you're probably right. You know, again, over the long term, it's just how long is long term, right? Most companies' lifespan is twenty years. Most, you know, like you know, again, I think theoretically you're right. It's just like, does that happen in six months or does that happen in forty years? Thank you.